battle God's law Revolutionary entrepreneurs Who make the fans clap their hands And stop on the floor Now start the applause Thank you very much Without further ado Let me introduce the rest of my crew I am the world Hello, good afternoon. My name is T. Hetzel, and you've tuned in to The Living Writers Show. Um, today, I'm so happy to be sitting here with the writer Ratawat Lapshero and Sap. Um, welcome, Thanks. Ratawat. It's uh, awesome to be here. And uh, do you mind? He, he has a nickname, everyone, uh, A. Um, so, so I think I'll just... Call you A, if that that's sounds okay. Good. And you can call me T. Uh, together we are T and A. <laughs> We're where it's at. <laughs> ah, that's right, the humor. Um, well, well, welcome. You're no stranger to Ann Arbor, though. No, are, I'm are not. You? Not at all. Um, I used to live here, so it's nice to be back. And um, when 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 were you here? I a. was here between 2001 and 2003, or 2000 and 2003. I don't even know, and I used to live on West Liberty and, you know, all West, that. West the Liberty, West o- over the tracks. Yeah, it's the like wrong side of the tracks out there. <laughs> Me too. Great neighborhood. It's true. <laughs> um, well, A is in town, uh, everyone. He was in town reading last night at the Shaman Drum, uh, which was Thursday. So you'll actually be hearing, this is a pre-taped show, so um, you... You sadly won't have the opportunity to hear A reading at Shaman Drum this time, but I'm sure he'll be back in town. And he is—he has promised to read for us a little bit of um, his his book, his collection of stories, Sightseeing, which has received a critical acclaim here in the States and in the UK, UK and abroad. And um, how how is it received in Thailand, A? Why don't we just jump in there with um, that? Because that's where you grew up. That's yeah, it's, it's weird because... I write in English, and um, as most people know, most people in Thailand don't speak English, or they do only serviceably to sort of, you know, do business and talk to tourists. But um, the Farangs. Yeah, um, and but uh, a few stories have been translated into Thai, and it's been the reception has been interesting. <laughs> um, and and people in Thailand are very concerned about how the West perceives um, perceives Thailand. Um, the government is very concerned about it. Um, they don't want Thailand to be perceived as a den of like sex and drugs and police corruption and whatnot. But the sex and drugs—that's really—that's a big draw for part of the tourist industry, isn't it? Or yeah, I mean, I so? wish I wish it happened more to me when I was there, you know. <laughs> but I guess it is for a lot of people who come to Thailand. Um, but you know, lots of nice tourists come to Thailand too, and I always. I, but any, in any case. A Thai audience has a very different set of concerns, I think. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I'm writing, because I'm writing in English, it's primarily for an English-speaking audience. Um, so all my relatives who live in Thailand, uh, which is all my relatives, um, you know, they, 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 they claim to have read it and they like it. I mean, those are that's the Thai audience I'm familiar with. Um, what, is it coming out in magazines there or how yeah. is it being or is it a short story collection there as well but the a, a whole shorter collection one. hasn't been translated into Thai which is a which right. is a very surreal kind of sensation because I you know that's that's actually what I feel even though it's not my primary audience because I write in English I, mm-hmm. it's kind of important to me that they you know they eventually get to read it too. Um, so one day I hope it'll be fully translated into Thai. And and that's not you're not doing the work of the translation by the sounds no. of it. That's a it's a third party. Yeah, that that would just drive me crazy. Do um, you work with the person closely, or is it? Um, um, I try. I tend to leave it alone. I mean, I think all translation is a kind of act of interpretation anyway. And um, 
and writers shouldn't sit around and, 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 and interpret their own work in that particular manner. I mean, I would just end up having to rewrite the whole book if I tried to translate it myself. Um, and that would take another five years <laughs> as opposed to as opposed to a translator who would take two months, three months, four months. Right, right. Are you, well, Are do you ever write in, in Thai? Do you? I do, I've tried, but um, my, my literary vocabulary is entirely um, American and British. Um, and so I left Bangkok when I was about 16, 17. And, you know, up until then, I had just ignored everything that was being taught to me in Thai public schools. So... It's um, so my literary vocabulary is poor in Thai. Um, there's some Thai books I really love and I keep go back to, and mm. it's only recently that I've like trying to make up for lost time for all the pieces of literature I'd ignored when I was a kid in Bangkok. But um, because my American, my my literary vocabulary is entirely American, I, I I write my fiction in English. I write letters home in Thai, but that's about it. Yeah. Well, it's, 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 it's... I try to write in Thai, fiction in Thai, and it's, it's bad. It's like a, it's a bad thing. <laughs> it <laughs> well, makes me so, sad. It makes you sad because yeah. it's frustrating or because you feel like it's not quite the same, getting to the same ideas or well, the part of it that you Well, I'm want. not as familiar with the convention and the history um, as I am, you know, with, with the American context of, of the language. Um, it's hard to uh, it's hard to feel confident um, when I'm writing in Thai. Um, I feel like I'm surely breaking all sorts of conventions and rules that I shouldn't be breaking at all. Mm, I don't know. That sounds kind of that kind of sounds good to me, though. Like being a, an outlaw in the. It sounds because it seems like if you're writing letters, that would be one of the most honest and and real use of language, yeah. especially since that's almost like an outdated convention now yeah. in a way. Too. I mean, it's utilitarian and it's 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 honest. You're right in a very different way. But you know, when you write write fiction in a language, um, I think a certain amount of like familiarity. <laughs> With uh, with the the literature's history and um, and context is useful. Um, right. I won't keep arguing with you, eh? <laughs> no, it's true. Um, but it's well worth arguing because there have been writers. You know, English is my second language. So I mean, even to English, I'm coming to to it as a someone who's never felt like he had a right to write in this language anyway so um that's that's so amazing to me to actually even consider i don't know why i hadn't thought of it before that it would be your second language and it's it just yeah. seems so, so it's weird that i don't write literature in my native tongue but i write literature in the second language that i that i learned um as as a teenager um and so so yeah that, that's a that's a strange sensation it's a little surreal but but there are plenty of writers who bring new things to the language from from a different language. Not that I'm doing that at all, but um, no, I bet you are. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's why you're chosen to be on the Living Writers Show. <laughs> I just thought I was chosen because I'm alive. <laughs> well, that's a big that's a big part of it, eh? <laughs> just to be living. That's part of the criteria. <laughs> but but we were actually talking earlier uh, about having a, a dead writer's show where the, the living writers uh, come and embody their favorite uh, dead writer. Yeah, so they might amazing. come back for that, actually. Right. With or without finger puppets. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Who's what, do you have one off the top of your head, eh? Who, would you, who you'd come back and... I would love to figure out how to impersonate somebody, but I just feel like I would do it such injustice. You know, like I'd love to 
see, I'd love to see somebody try to impersonate like Henry James or something and right. see how that goes. Right, you know, right. Because I can't even imagine what kinds of, outside of like reading his biography or something, like what kinds of mannerisms or like whether or not he chortles a lot or or is he a snorter when he laughs, you know, some. <laughs> I you definitely have to, if we ever do that show, you have to come back for it because of your concern for the chortling versus the what kind of laughter. You would be an amazing um, uh, living writer impersonating the dead writer. Okay, well, um, on with the show here. Uh, what Something struck me when you said you'd sort of ignored the um, what you'd been taught at school up until you were about 17, and now you're actually teaching school yeah. in, in Brooklyn, right? It's true. And you're teaching high school. So um, do, are they listening to you, A? No. <laughs> what are you teaching no, them? No, I'm just, I'm just trying not to interfere with their education. I just, I just tell them things to read, and, and, and they pretend to have read it, and then we talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes that seems even familiar for the collegiate group, yeah, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, no, but there's, in all, in all seriousness, um, you know, I teach at a Quaker school called Friends Seminary, and they're they're lovely kids. Um, they're they're as insofar as fifteen and sixteen year olds can be lovely. Um, mm. You know, I thank my blessings every day. I'm not one of them anymore because uh, it's that it's really hard to be that young, apparently. Um, but they're engaged with the literature in, in really interesting ways and in ways that I wish I was when I was their age. So, um, some jumping ahead a little bit here um, from what you just said, a um, that they're it's really hard to be that age and the the writers uh, the the i'm sorry the characters in your stories many of them are really young voices and and their concerns is that why you're you choose to write about um young narrators because it's a hard time and therefore it attracts your attention because you think there's important things happening during that time of life yeah i mean i don't think it's the most important time of life but for me it brings into relief really interesting problems, um, at least for me personally. I don't know if it's interesting to anyone else, but it's just like that is a particular age where the confusions are interesting, um, mm. and and kids are kids are really confused, and 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 you know if you know I always think like if stories try to you know try to be some kind of put some order to confusion. Um, then one of the narrators that would always justify themselves is a is a younger narrator full of confusion <laughs> um, and trying to put order to it. So, and you know, it's an age where a lot of things come into relief for the first time. It's the age when you first start to hate your parents or doubt them. Um, when you sort of have a kind of un un unwieldy um, despair. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and uh, you know, and and you know, you, you know, like grandparents start to die around then, I, I think, and um, for some people, and you know, you realize your parents are like people too. Um, they're not, they're not gods for whom like milk seems to f- like mm. come towards, <laughs> come from. Um, yeah, and so I mean, all these things happen. You know, you just become a sentient person in a way you weren't when you were eight years old. Um, you begin to have nostalgia for your childhood for the first time. It's really interesting watching my high school students. They're they're about sixteen and like they've reached an age where there's they're 
they've begun to have nostalgia for the first time. Like, oh, it was so much better when I was in second grade. Um, because junior high and high school were is is a nightmare, right? Um, and it's it's interesting to watch that first moment where somebody looks back, um, mm. because I, and and that fictionally creates interesting situations for me. But that makes a lot of sense. It's it's interesting that you say that because I've seen that same nostalgia surfacing with college students who are seniors and sort of thinking about leaving and so that must be another common yeah. time where you're reflecting even though you're so young you you feel very old <laughs> yeah yeah and you often lie to yourself and and people who lie to themselves always make for interesting fiction mm, yeah because you're like you know can you can be you can be like second grade was great but then when you check the record you're like actually second grade was when like i got beat up by yeah, when like Bob. S- sally sally made me eat dirt i forgot about that you know <laughs> Yeah, every Wednesday. <laughs> yeah, every Wednesday like in the parking That's Sally. lot. Sally. Yeah. Every Wednesday in the parking lot, Sally would put a handful of gravel in my mouth for no reason. <laughs> Roughage. <laughs> Sally truly cared. But um, there's this lovely line that I I can't remember verbatim. Um, a but where you say the one of the first times when you're emerging out of childhood, when you're becoming adult, an adult is when you're able to see and um, understand and have sympathy for the the grief of someone else yeah and and that I thought was a really lovely moment of understanding in the thanks I mean you know childhood can be boring too you know and and like childhood is a really boring time in someone's life how how so like my childhood was boring in many ways come on no it was it's just like you're just a kid, like, you have no power, you can't vote, you can't drink, like, you can't stay out late at night, like, the whole world seems to be doing things that you can't do. That's true. And you're not entitled to do either... You can ride your bike. Legally or socially, yeah, like, you can ride your bike around if you you even have a bike, Um, you know, Um, and so, you know, the child is, like, this totally weird social category who's both, like, overvalued and totally disenfranchised. Um, and so you, you, I think no matter sort of what social class people are at, and I've discovered this because I teach at a private high school, the, the people like as child, children feel can feel immensely disempowered by everybody, um, and that's 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 why teenagers have such a hard time <laughs> um, because they're they're right on the cusp of of something of enfranchisement and mm-hmm. but yet they're constantly being reminded that they have nothing right I, except and then people start having especially in ex- this country oh really I yeah, think so yeah um, I think so where where I've never I've never seen I, I mean maybe I'm making a gross generalization but that's okay teenagers worry about the law a lot here um, it seems to me um, like how do I get a six-pack you know, mm-hmm. or um, or am I allowed to do this? And there, I mean, it seems like there are a lot of prohibitions against teenagers. Right, um, you can buy dry ice at yeah, 18. It's 11 p.m., do my parents know where I am? You know, that kind of, like, sense of surveillance. And, and so I feel in this country in particular, like, teenagers are constantly reminded of how disenfranchised they are. Um, but yet, you know, if, if I shoot somebody, they're going to try me as an adult. That kind of thing, too. Yeah. And so... You know, and I think all teenagers have a sense of persecution any, anyhow, but mm-hmm. I think in this country in particular, it seems like the state is like constantly reminding them that they, they've got nothing. 
That is really interesting. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to think about that a little bit. <laughs> I am going to too. I don't. I'm just thinking out loud. It's. it's I wonder if the. Um, well, thank you for thinking out loud because it makes for very interesting. <laughs> interesting. But that's times. not why I write about young characters. I just write about young characters because I was young once too, and mm-hmm. and um, and and. And what that, was, that was an interesting time for me. And what you're writing about currently, your current project, is also featuring a young narrator. Yeah. Or, or does the scope go longer than that? It's, a, and it's I a little longer. Um, it's a sort of older... Oh. Oh, oh, you know what? I think now that I just... Uh, let's think on that for one second and we'll go to break and we'll come back. Um, and, yep, you're listening to Living Writers and we'll be back in a moment. Welcome back. You're listening to The Living Writer Show. My name is T. Hetzel, and I'm here talking with Ratawat Lapshero and Sap, um, who I'm fondly calling A, <laughs> as his, many his friend, of his friends do. Um, I'd also like to say thanks to our engineer, Chaz Barrett, uh, for all his great work. Thank you, uh, Chaz. Thank you. <laughs> so, so A, um, do you mind picking up where we left off there? That um, Which was where again well when we were talking about why why you think you write the the that it's not just because you were young and you think it's an interesting time but why you're writing younger voices and um and whether in your your current project the novel that you're working on currently if the scope is broader where the the person will sort of cover more of their life yeah it it should cover more of his life Um, I'm, i'm working on a novel at the moment and um it's an older narrator looking back, back on on a crucial moment in his childhood, um, and so at some point the narrative will come up to, come up against um, the older narrator himself in in his present time frame. Um, but yeah, you know, <clears throat> there's a lot of literature from the point of view of young children right now, and I think uh, some of it can be very convincing and some of it can be quite unconvincing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there, you know, but. For me, it's just I don't I don't know. I mean, some, sometimes I think it's like a poverty of imagination on my part, just like not being able to write from any other point of view. <laughs> That's no, I can't imagine that. It but must then, be what you're obsessed with, like what you feel. Yeah, is this, you know. This, but the then I think I think of idea. a writer like William Maxwell, who I love, um, who who constantly revisits, like in novels like So Long, See You Tomorrow. 
Yes. And um, they came like swallows. Um, it seems to constantly be revisiting a particular episode, um, usually involving his mother's death, um, and, and in particular pivotal moments of betrayal or grief um, in, in his Illinois childhood. And, and, you know, so, I mean, if if he did it and he could do it beautifully, you know, then, you know, it's well worth a shot from, from my end, too, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. Yes? Okay, Keep good. taking those Thank shots, eh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah. Well, well. How about? Um, would you mind reading us a little bit? Not uh, at all. From... Not at all. Okay. T- tell us what you're going to read, please. Well, so I'm going to read from the title story of my collection, Sightseeing, which was published um, a couple of years ago. Um, and this, this, this needs no introduction. Otherwise, I guess um, I'm just going to pick up in the middle of a story for about a page or two, and then uh, we can talk some more. Great. Okay. So this is from a story called Sightseeing. We're going to Gotlukmark, the last in a long chain of Andaman Islands, a tiny fortress of forest and stone. Ma's boss had a picture of Lukmak on the office bulletin board for years, and Ma said she wanted to see what the fuss was all about. The fine sand, the turquoise water, the millions of fishes swimming in the shallow. Her boss had called it paradise, and though I remember Ma telling me as a child that Thailand was only a paradise for fools and furangs, for criminals and foreigners, She's willing to give it a chance now. If paradise is really out there, so close to home, she might as well go and see for herself. It is not an easy trip. Twelve hours by train, eight hours by boat. And Lukmak is so small it rarely appears on most maps. In a few hours, we will step off this train and sleep in Trang. We will leave that small seaboard town at daybreak, hired boat at Tatian. The boat will be small and thin, the monsoons approach in a few months' time. Our vessel will skip dangerously along the sea's hard current. We will stop to rest and take lunch at Gatrawayan, the first of the Andaman Islands, an abandoned penal colony. We will leave Trawayan after lunch, board the same small boat, get to Lukmak by nightfall. Sightseeing, Ma said, when we bought our tickets at the station in Bangkok. We'll be farangs, we'll be just like the tourists. This is my last summer with Ma. At the end of the summer, I'm to leave for a small vocational college up north. I watch the blue of the Andaman on the right side of the train. Ma has turned the other way, watching the murky brown of the gulf. Her window is open. She presses her face against the warm wind, her long black hair whipping wildly around her, the thin navy blue blouse fluttering against her chest. Our shoulders knock every so often, rocking to the motion of the train. We've barely spoken since we left Bangkok early this morning from Hualampong Station. I break the silence. I tell her to look straight ahead toward the front of the car. I ask if she can see both oceans out of the corners of her eyes. She smiles and tells me she can. One eye blue, one eye brown. My mother puts a hand on my knee. Then we are silent again, eyes fixed to the front of the car. We know that soon the mountains will rise and we shall be committed to one side of the peninsula, blue or brown that the sun shall set and the oceans will soon be dark and inhospitable, that the earth only thins and flattens out long enough for us to see two oceans at a single glance, that only a handful of people ever get to see this in their lifetime. Above all, Ma and I know that if things were different, if our lives were simply following their ordinary course, we would never have taken the time to notice such sights. That's all I got. Oh. Well, there's, <clears throat> there's so much more to the story. I love that, that part of it. Just, oh, thanks. Is, yeah. 
It's so lovely, <coughs> the pathos there, because... Yeah. Well, the mother's going blind. Yes. And, um, and, and this narrator is trying to decide if he's going to stick around, help, help his blind mom, or soon-to-be blind mother, or go off and, uh, and, and be, be a college student. And and it is so wonderful when you the, like these subtle moments where you say, um, this is not this this sight that very few people would see, um, anyway. Um, that's um, it's got the double meanings because now his mom might not be seeing it ever again. And and but then they wouldn't have been traveling this way had she not been going blind. Their their lives their normal courses of their lives would have not yeah. taken them on this. It's yeah. it's just really lovely. Hey. Yeah. I th- thank you. I think there's a kind of desperation. To, to this trip like mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, it, it, that story actually came out of a, a watching a very good friend of my mother's go blind and um, and I remember she was living alone at the time and um, and she wouldn't she wouldn't tell anybody she was going blind and I remember we went out to dinner with this woman one night and uh, and she kept missing the plate with her like utensils and this was way before we knew she was going blind. And I, I, I remember just sitting there, just thinking, "That's so, that's so odd." Like she keeps stabbing the table with her fork. Right. Um, <laughs> and so when I heard about a few months later that she had gone blind, um, it, it made sense. And sort of out of that, I, I kind of um, wrote that story. Oh, and there, there was also a detail that she had started traveling a lot um, at, at, as she knew that she was going blind. So I just figured, you know, that's a sort of somewhat interesting story what what it would mean to take a kind of final and conscious catalog of the world before before you couldn't see it anymore exactly and yet also having that um that's a very particular uh uh, story, but then also having the universal of the mother and the son's relationship, because um, whatever would have happened um, in their lives, he still would have been leaving her for the first time. In yeah. this case, to move to a, a northern college, yeah. um, and and in your work, there's there's lots of um, uh, there's there's a, a deep connections and the the familial relationships. Yeah. I think in in particular in that story, maybe some of the other ones. Like I've I've noticed this sort of interesting tendency in a lot of American fiction um, where parental relationships, particularly between mothers and son, maybe it's because of Freud, Hmm. are often so fraught and um, so antagonistic in very similar ways um, and so full of um, a a pathos that I am familiar with in my own way, but um, but I also think that sometimes mothers and sons get along um, and and still... um, still manage to like you know make each other happy and make each other sad in in typical ways um without like having a kind of sophie portnoy kind of model of motherhood which i think haunts haunts um the mother-son relationship in fiction quite a bit um and so but not in and i had and i had all. never you know for for me like I, I i just want i try to write stories that i would want to read and like for a long time i was like oh i'd really like to read a mother-son relationship where the conflict is not so much um, sort of entirely invested in the antagonism between the mother and the son, but rather the conflict is generated elsewhere as well. Um, and so, because, you know, people get along with their moms. <laughs> right. And, and problems arise and hijinks ensues anyway. Uh, <laughs> and so f- 
Well, for some reason, I feel like a lot of narrative energy gets generated out of antagonism towards parental figures, whether it be fathers or mothers. Um, and so that, that was kind of an experiment, actually. That story was a real experiment. And like, oh, okay, like I've never seen this. I want to try and do this. Um, and that, that's how it came about. And, but maybe I just haven't read enough. I mean, I think there's some beautiful mother-son. Like, William Maxwell is a good model. I think that's that's why I mentioned William Maxwell earlier, for the, mm -hmm. especially around this story. There's a kind of devotional, um, devotional like, piety or, or filial piety um, to um, the memory of his mother, in particular in They Came Like Swallows and So Long See Tomorrow. Um, where, where the conflict is always elsewhere. The conflict is actually either within the narrator himself. Um, and, and, you know, the mother in this story is not angelic by any means. Um, it's wonderful when she, she uh, bargains in the market for the sunglasses. Yeah, she's, she's kind of like manipulative and funny, mm -hmm. um, as most, of <laughs> most <laughs> maternal figures tend to be, I think. Um, but also very idiosyncratic. Um, and, and she, she will use her blindness in her own favor if it means like getting a good deal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but then also says, um, cause then she ends up losing the glasses on yeah. the boat and then she says, well, it could be just, it's the retribution for what she did to the girl in the marketplace to get them to begin yeah. with. So very, um, no, very but you know, I'm overgeneralizing about like the mother son thing, but I was just, I remember at that moment when I wrote it, I thought, well, you know, I'd really like to see a mother son relationship where the antagonism or the conflict is generated from without rather than from within. Um, because when, when it's from within, you know, it's, it, it's entirely too Freudian a drama for me. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that's someone else. I was just kind of tired of. Freud at that particular month I was writing the story, I think. <laughs> um, it, so, so what did your uh, mom think when she read, when, did you read the story to her or what was her well, response to? Her response work? was, why did I have to go blind? I, you know, I don't think she really thinks that she, it's her in the story. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, my mother is a great bargainer at a, at a market. Um, and and she is she is a master bargainer. Um, she will bargain and uh, a vendor out of house and home, in Bangkok. So that 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 was something you know <laughs> that seems autobiographical. But other than that, I mean, she she sort of she sort of bewildered. Um, and I remember her asking me, "Why why did you make me go blind? Oh, <laughs> what is that supposed to mean?" <laughs> like, Mom, it's not really you. Well, yeah. we'll be um, we're going to take another short break, and cool. we'll be right back to hear hear more. Hear me hailing from inside 
Welcome back. Uh, you're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Uh, my name is T. Hetzel. It's the Living Writers Show, and I'm sitting here with Radawat Lapshero and Sap. Um, and we're back. Um, we just uh, heard A read um, a, a short segment from his uh, the title of his collection, Sightseeing, and um, and we're talking about mothers and sons. We are. Yes. People, they exist. <laughs> people have mothers, people have sons. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Don't be so contentious. <laughs> yeah, it's controversial stuff. Exactly. Well, um, well so, so you also have um, more family than your mother, yeah. and, and they're, they're back in, in Thailand. Everyone in my family is back in Thailand, and with the exception of a younger sister I have who lives in San Diego. Um, and is a medical student and will one day be funding my writing career, hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed, yes. Um, But they, yeah, my entire family is in Bangkok and um, this province called Supanburi, which is in Western Thailand as well. Um, Well, it sounds beautiful. Is it it sort of... um, It can be. um, uh, Thailand can be beautiful. I, I, I do think it's a very beautiful country, um, geographically, mm-hmm. in terms of the landscape and culturally, and incredibly diverse. Um, but you know, there are a lot of ugly things about Thailand, um, just as there are a lot of ugly things everywhere else. Um, well, you, last night you had mentioned that um, it, the military uh, law is yeah. There's um there was a coup several months ago, um, and 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 now there's there's for all intents and purposes, a dictatorship in place for a while. Um, we're not sure how long. They say it's temporary, but we're not quite sure. Martial law is still instated in a lot of the provinces, um, and in several provinces. Um, and so, yeah, it's been it's been a difficult few years for Thailand politically. Um, whether or not it has like immediate effects on a day to day basis for people is uh, it just depends on where you live. Um, mm-hmm. For your family, how? For how my family, they haven't been as affected. I mean, they're able to carry on their daily lives. They just—it's a niggling sort of annoyance almost. Um, but I know for for some of my family members, especially in the south of Thailand, it's it's a real worry because the south of Thailand has gone through a lot of unrest of late, and and to have um, this dictatorship in place on top of you know the thousands of people who have been killed in that region lately is, is, you know, it's a little worrying. So they kind of live in a bit of a war zone down there. Right. And that's definitely, it, you said earlier that the government is concerned about what's being written about Thailand because they want it to seem like it's a pretty place, but yeah, not, well, you know, it's old, not at old stereotypes. Yeah, and not, but Thailand generates um, a lot of money from tourism. It's one of its main ways of getting revenue into the country. Yes. 
And so the government, since the 80s actually, and the tourism boom has always been like all about portraying this image, this like very Cosby show image of Thailand. There's like a, you know, the, one of the more famous slogans, it's, it's the land of smiles or it's exotic Thailand. Um, and there was a recent survey that said Thailand is the number one tourist destination in the world. And, um, and so, you know, they're trying to portray this image of this, whereas on the other hand, there's a lot in a lot of Western writing or media, um, there is this sense and stereotype of Thailand as not the land of smiles, but the land of sex and drugs and, and corruption um, and prostitutes and drug runners and the Golden Triangle and, and military thugs. Um, and so between those two polar um, representations of Thailand, like none of, neither of which, neither of them seem to agree with my sense of a lived reality in Thailand. Mm. Um, you know, as a teenager, I was like, where are, where is all the sex, drugs, and rock and roll in the city that everyone's coming for? Um, and, and where is all this friendliness that this government seems to purport that we have? I mean, it's, my family used to say that, yeah, it is the land of smiles, but only, only for the tourists, um, because, you know, they're not smiling at we're not smiling at each other that's for sure um and so a lot of a lot of my sort of a lot of i guess my fiction is born out of that frustration in some ways of having to live between those two polar ideas of what thailand's supposed to be um and sort of being on the ground as and living in bangkok while these sort of ideals, like platonic ideals, really, um, was sort of looming everywhere, because um, you were just, you were just living this, you suddenly felt like you weren't having that much fun, like, compared to the tourists, or, you know, like, why are they having such an incredible time in the city, and, like, I'm having, I'm just walking in shopping malls every weekend. Right, Where, where's my exotic Thailand? Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, I, I can only imagine that I will keep it that those tensions will keep surfacing in your work, and because well, even from what you read last night, um, mm -hmm. with the 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 main the the narrator being the the son of the field marshal, mm. um, which seems like a step away from well, that's obviously the military, yeah. And so the, the well, I think the, the military has had an immense sort of force in Thai social and political life in the twentieth century. Um, I come from a family of draft dodgers, um, and it's always sort of been a been a kind of fascinating world for me. I was also in the Thai Armed Reserves briefly as well. Really? So um, when I was 15 and 16. Um, and so I, you know, it's, it, it's, it's exerted an enormous amount of influence. And I, I just feel like if we we're going to talk about Thailand in the 20th century, like you have to talk about tourism, and you have to talk about... Um, I mean, many, many things. But one of the other things you have to talk about certainly is the the rise and fall of the military in that country, and now the rise again um, mm. at the beginning of the twenty first century. Oh, I hope it doesn't. I hope it doesn't last long. Maybe. I hope so too. But I shouldn't even be saying that. They might be listening. <laughs> Knock on um, this wooden table. Well, how about you've brought something else to read to us? Um, okay. Would you? Would you? Yeah, I can read you something of? else. This okay. is something. I, I don't tend to read something new, but I'm just going to read something new and unfinished. Well, um, that's, that sounds exciting. <laughs> which, which, you know, which will be what it is. It's, and it's a debut. You're hearing it first, Ann Arbor. That's right. Um, okay, so I'll just read for a couple of minutes. That sounds great. 
Um, it was the year that the men in our family started to die. Akong was first. For six months, he lay in the municipal hospital, surrounded by a tangle of tubes and a stack of ticking machines. We took our turn sitting at the old man's side, bidding him goodbye. None of us had known him very well. Despite his decades in the country, Akong had never spoken any Thai. But by the time we arrived, the man was already far beyond the reach of any language. He would lie there, locked up in his terrors, clawing at the bread spread, clenching in and unclenching his hands, while we paid our respects in a language he didn't understand. Every so often, he would punctuate our entreaties with sharp, guttural bursts of his own incomprehensible tongue, filling the ammoniac air with barks and brays that nobody could decipher, not even those who still spoke the old man's Cantonese. Amma said that her husband had been taken by the devil, that it was only natural for a man who had led his life under the devil's influence to be possessed so completely during his dying days, and the younger ones would be ushered from the room to spare them his obscenities. That's not him, somebody would say, while his ranting rang the ward. That's not your gong. But Amma always scoffed and said that it was him, that the bastard was finally being himself, and that the younger ones should be made to witness the horror and the ruin that awaited a life of cruelty, thievery, philandering, and general wickedness. She never left Akong's side during those last six months. She simply sat there clicking her knitting needles, eating her fishes and her oranges, sipping at her teacups of rum. When we visited, she would regale us with stories of his countless sins. Some of these stories had been told before, but many were being aired for the very first time, and while she cataloged his transgressions, she never failed to aim a wry and triumphant smile in his direction. There was never any fondness in the smile, no hint of nostalgia or of forgiveness, only the retracted cheeks, the bared teeth, the glassy and excited eyes. She was smiling, we all knew, because she was finally getting her revenge. He had punished her all his life, but now she would deliver the final telling blow, and there was satisfaction in her doing all this while he was alive, lying there diminished on his gurney, instead of brandishing incriminations after he'd gone far beyond her reach. The old man would stare out of his sunken, withered face, claw furiously at the bedspread, volley the air with his grunts and his moans, and these impotent protests, the old man's utter defenselessness, always seemed to widen our grandmother's smile. Be quiet, she would say, sipping at her rum as he thrashed among his tubes. If you have something to say for yourself, say it in a language we understand. We all agreed that Amma had never seemed so happy. Thanks. Thank you, A. That's it. Thank you. Wow. You're welcome. That's, um, Thank you. That's, um, that's it. See, I'm, I'm kind of speechless now, so it's, it's so, <laughs> sort of sobering. Well, we have to... Um, Thanks for sorry. It's been so depressing. No, I don't mean to read such like depressing things. No, no, it's it's beautiful. It it is, Um, and it's it's spring outside, so people can handle it now. It's not like we're in the depths of winter, and we should be, you know, cool. You know, trotting out a can can line of dancers, (laughs) or you know, Um, but thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. And um, and I hope if you're next in Ann Arbor, you you'll come back and. And, and talk more. And, I will. And, I might even more. impersonate a dead writer. Okay, you've been thinking about that, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll work on it. <laughs> and uh, well, this has been the Living Writers Show um, uh, with T. Hetzel here, and I've been speaking with Radawat Lapsheroinsap. Um, and thanks to Chaz Barrett, um, our wonderful engineer. And uh, we'll be back next Wednesday. Thanks. Thanks.
That's the end of Living Writers. This is Chaz uh, filling in an extra 15 minutes on the schedule for this semester. Living Writers, I guess, is a full hour now, 4.30 to 5.30. So um, 15 minutes of freeform since that was a pre-recorded interview, and there's none of it left. So uh, here's a track off of the new uh, Wiretapper uh, comp. It's Von Sudenfed. The song is called Family Feud. Yeah. Uh. 